Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name's Dev Raga and in this episode we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Dean who's a medical doctor who is really interested to come on the show to talk about his vision about money, personal finance, debt, savings and investing. So welcome Dr. Dean. Thanks for having me Dev. Been a long time listener. Very glad to be here. So in this episode, we'll go through you know, quite a few things about your, your sort of vision about investing. And we actually got chatting about sort of six months ago. So hopefully this turns out into a very interesting conversation. Really appreciate your time to come on the show. So Dean, are you ready to get started? Let's get going. All right, let's get started. Now, if you're new to the show, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to tweet me or follow me on Facebook. That's the best way to get me. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions. And of course, leave a five-star rating if you can. Now, uh, Dean, if it's all right, I'll just call you Dean from now on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I understand you're a medical doctor. And um, tell us about, I mean, how many years post-graduation are you? And uh, are you in training? And uh, what your future goals are? Uh, So I'm a PGY7, so seven years out of medical school, I was an undergraduate science uh, major and a postgraduate uh, medical student. I um, have done a bit of work in rural Victoria and realized I initially wanted to do orthopedics, uh, but then did a year or two of un- a year of unaccredited work in solar light. So now I'm a private professional private assistant uh, and I work um, doing some virtual consultations as well. Right. So do you mainly just do assisting for orthopedics or do you do other specialties as well? I do assisting for mainly orthopedic, but a bit of neurosurgery and a bit of cosmetics. Oh, fantastic. And you're Victoria based? Correct. Yeah. Based in Victoria. Right. Okay. That's interesting. And um, in terms of medical school and stuff like that, I'm just curious, uh, did you do everything in Victoria or did you do it interstate and then sort of came to Victoria for your postgraduate sort of career? No, so I was an international student. Um, I'm from Malaysia. I came here when I was 17. So I did an undergraduate degree uh, at Melbourne University and then uh, postgraduate med at Monash. All right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Right. And so does that mean that you had to pay full fees in order to study medicine in Australia? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or is that more uh, of a complex story? Have I, no, have I gone? Um, have I... No, uh, that's uh, from the Bank of um, Mother and Father Scholarship. Uh, very blessed in, in that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, full fee paying and you know, it's quite a significant amount. Yeah, so just for people that are not aware, and, and we do have a lot of listeners that are not that are not doctors and not in the healthcare at all. Full fee paying places in Australia coming from overseas are extremely expensive. Um, I'm not sure how much it was, um, Dean, for you, but my understanding is it's in excess of $30,000 fees for the actual studies plus all the living expenses, etc. Am I sort of in the ballpark? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> it's uh, actually $60,000 a semester. Wow. 
um, postgraduate. And so for hyper, you know, if we do numbers here, we, we're talking undergraduate degrees when I was going through, it was about $38,000 a year, Australian. And uh, that is not inclusive of your um, living expenses, lodging, extracurricular, whatever you want. Um, so that was for three years. Medical school was $60,000 a year. Um, again, not inclusive of uh, living expenses. Uh, so no, that came, <laughs> has come up to roughly, you know, about a half a million dollars. <laughs> Inflation. It's in the it's 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 actually that's so so just to do some 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 numbers here, so you know thirty eight forty grand for three years that's one hundred and twenty AUD plus sixty grand per year for how many years post grad is it four years yep so that's two forty so yeah it's half a million dollars I mean that's um that's incredible gross underestimation on my part so and I suspect that's when you were doing it. Is that right? Or is that like today's fees you're talking about? No, that was when I was doing it. Today's fees are a lot higher from what I've heard. I think they're, you know, I think close to maybe about 70,000 now. Wow. Okay. And and I suspect in terms of the cost of medical school, and, and it's interesting that you brought this up. I mean, you went to a pretty expensive university. So if you were to go to another university, I mean, what what's the cost differential? Is that something you did some research on before doing uh, undergrad and postgrad med school? Uh, the options were to come here or um, at the time it was um, UK to do medical school. Right. Um, and I think the the financial, some, the, the numbers were, you know, pretty even. So it, Australia was closer to Malaysia than, you know, London was. So it was a, a, a more logistical logistical decision. Lot more connectivity to Southeast Asia, that's for sure. Correct. But in terms of, um, I assume it's not seventy thousand dollars a year across the board for every single university. I assume that if you went to a, you know, I suppose, is there such a thing as a cheaper university? Like, could you go interstate to a different state, let's say South Australia or WA, and pay less fees, or is it pretty much the same across the board across Australia when you were researching about it? No, at the time, I think it was pretty similar across the board. It was just because of how competitive it was, you know, you took the first spot you got and you just dealt with it. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, for those of you that are listening in, a few months ago, we actually did an episode about how to get into medical school, uh, primarily focusing on undergraduate and postgraduate entrance for Australian residents and citizens. So you might want to go back and listen to it if you're an aspiring medical student uh, or if you're an aspiring international student. Um, uh, certainly the entrance process for medicine, uh, Dean, I sort of calculated roughly, it's extremely competitive in Australia comparable to a lot of the world. It's, it's not as if it's easy to get into Australia compared to, you know, perhaps other countries, which is quite surprising. Wow, okay. That certainly has changed. And what, what was your, you said your aspirations initially was orthopaedic. So I just want to sort of unpack that a little bit more. So are you, obviously, that, are you more sort of surgically minded, hence now sort of private assisting full time? Is that the, and why orthopaedics? I'm just curious in terms of specialty choice? Uh, well, orthopedics um, appeal to me because of the nature of your work. You know, you, we, we use a lot of tools and work with hands and the outcomes were, you know, relatively clear cut. You know, there is a fracture, you fix a fracture. Um, and, and the work was really interesting, you know, it was really, really exciting work and really stimulating, but the hours were grueling. 
the trainings along is really difficult and, and it just wasn't what uh, wasn't what I wanted to give up I guess I, you know I, I appreciated the rest of my life a little bit more and, and uh, so I've had a second I've, I've decided against it and moved on to do something else Right. You have a fracture, you fix it. There's that little famous video on YouTube. uh, And and for those non-medical, you should probably literally Google that on YouTube and and just put that in. You'll see a lot of cartoons. I'm sure, Dean, you've heard about those videos where where they talk about uh, various specialties and it's actually quite comical, which is interesting. And then I suppose once you sort of decided on your career is then it's basically just networking with various surgeons who basically have their own set operating list and you just rock up to theatre and just assist them. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So you you provide a lot of assistance in. So what I do at the moment is the equivalent of what a hospital registrar would do, mm-hmm. um, especially at a junior, a more junior stage. You come in, you see your patients, you have a chat with them, and um, and make sure that they're consented and marked. And um, most of the time, the surgeons do these themselves anyway. Um, but you there just as a bit of a, a another layer of safeguard for your patients. You you know help your patients get positioned. And, and um, you basically hold retractors, cut sutures um, to allow the surgeon the, the means to do the operation that needs to be done. Yep. And, and, and because you work with the same surgeons or similar surgeons most weeks, I assume now, you know, you just work in synergy with your team because one of the things about surgery is that literally the hospital, the operating theatre, the assistant, the surgeon, the anaesthetist, the equipment, the scrub nurse is pretty similar. So have you sort of basically just rinsed and repeated those you know practices and that way it increases your productivity? Because we've got a question about productivity a bit later in the episode, but I'm just curious, is it pretty much the same thing over and over and you just perfect it as much as you possibly can? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I work with a handful of surgeons now and like you say, you you know what they're doing next, you anticipate their moves, you give them the equipment before they need it, you know, you go into the right position where they need to be able to see certain things um, and you know what the needs of this is like, you know how they like certain things or, you know, um, and, and it's a team, it's a really nice team environment where you get to know each other and you work, you know, you spend eight hours a day, eight to ten hours a day on your feet with these guys, so... You get to know each other pretty well and the, the camaraderie is there in that sense. So working in a team is really nice. For And, you know, when you talk about productivity, it's about um, knowing in advance your plans and, and I guess that comes the same in finances, you know. If you plan for it, then you can execute it. But if you don't, then how are you going to do what you, want, what you need to do? Yeah, and can I ask, do you do a lot of after-hours operating then or is it mainly just predominantly elective theatre lists during business hours, weekdays? Uh, pretty variable. I've moved away from doing a lot of after-hours work precisely because of, you know, the orthopaedic lifestyle. Um, but occasionally, you know, operations drag on until the latest I've been involved in is 10, 10.30. And I have done occasional weekend lists as well, but those are not you know, the exception, not the rule. Right. And predominantly, my understanding is you would be operating in the private sector. So you're not assisting in the public sector at all. No, not at all. So these are all private hospitals and you're working on private patients. So you're assisting the surgeons, basically. Okay. So just for people that don't understand how surgical assisting works, particularly for the non-healthcare professionals, here's sort of a basic summary and I'll get Dean to expand it. When you go and have surgery in a private hospital, the surgeon sets their fees 
So it's often above, you know, whatever the rebates are for your private health insurance or whatever it is that Medicare pay, etc. Then the surgeon's assistant may also set their fee, but predominantly it's a lot less than what the surgeon would charge. Um, so that's the way Dean would be earning an income, predominantly per operation, per item number, whatever it is, he gets uh, he gets his own fees on that. Now, now, Dean, just to be absolutely clear, the surgeon doesn't pay you the fee, do they? So you have your own structure, you have your you have your own provider number for that particular hospital, and my understanding is you would bill the private health insurance for that patient, and the private health insurance would pay you. Is that how it would normally work? Yes, and no. it depends on what sort of operation you're having. So. You know, things, um, uh, we're talking mainly in the cosmetic sector now though, um, where it's typically a set fee with the surgeon and the surgeon pays you out of their their fees. But typically is exactly what you said. So assistants usually build 20% uh, of the surgeon's gap, uh, which, which is that out-of-pocket that you talk about. Uh, and, and the remainder of our fees is um, by the health insurance Okay. Yep. Sure. So, which means from a structuring perspective, you'd have to have your own ABN or your own company or whatever that you do, uh, and you're a separate entity. You are not part of the entity, which is the surgeon. Um, they have their own, you know, financial structures, etc. Perfect. Yep. No worries. So, just just out of interest, and and if you're comfortable sharing, how do you do those billings? So, for example. Do you keep stickers, uh, which I used to when I was surgical assisting, and then I'd go through an online agency that would do all the billing for me? Is that what you normally do? Uh, I take photos of op notes and send it off to a third-party billing agency, and they basically do everything for us. Okay, and it's all streamlined and basically gets batched up and, and, and you get the fee in your bank account, essentially. And the, those, those income is gross income. So then it's up to you to work out your tax rates and make sure. So it's, it's pretty much like a small business owner, you know, your tradee that, that, that sort of uh, bills people. Great. Okay. So just um, now that we've got into that, income-wise, can you give us, you know, what is your income and, and how much income does a surgical assistant earn? And I suspect that's dependent on the specialty. Uh, yeah. So my income in the last financial year was roughly $300,000. Uh, that is inclusive of um, our investments, shares, crypto, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then, in terms of your, you know, savings rate out of that, you know, that's your gross income. So I sort of generally sort of say, you know, try and save around that twenty percent of after-tax income. Is that what you're sort of currently aiming for, or have you got a significantly higher savings rate uh, based on uh, your income? So. For, you know, I, I'm very in a very fortunate position where my partner is also medical and, mm-hmm. and uh, so we're, and we've got no dependents. So we're, well, I think most people will call it dink, do income, no kids. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so we save all of her income. Okay. Right. And may I ask what specialty is she in or what, what sort of work that does she do? She's an anesthesia, anesthetics reg. All right, anesthetics reg. Okay, so, um, so that's that's an interesting sort of combo because you know pretty much you know your family's in the operating theatre essentially, and I suspect for people that are listening, an anesthetic registrar. I assume she's in the public system. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So currently she's getting a wage, and then when she graduates, when she achieves fellowship, then she can either do public work, which is 
part-time or full-time, which would be a salaried profession in the Australian public system, or she can go to the private system, which is kind of what you're doing, where she would have what's we call a fee-for-service arrangement. And, uh, you know, traditionally, anaesthetists do also earn a significant uh, amount of income certainly when they reach fellowship. So so you'd be saving all of her income and basically your income basically is gone for expenses, you know, uh, paying the bills, et cetera. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And I was just wondering, is that something do you think is sustainable moving forward? So, you know, is that your plan? Your plan is to try and work up your income, maybe at a half a mil, maybe a little bit higher, and then save all of your income in the future? Is that what you're sort of planning as a team approach? Uh, well, so here's the spanner in the works is um, I'm planning to do general practice training. So okay, um, that might take me a couple of years. So we're probably looking at a bit of an income drop there. Okay, that's sort of a transitory thing. But in the future, assuming both of you are fellows, you know, you're potentially looking at potentially saving an entire second income, which um, which can be quite significant. Is is that your sort of ongoing plan? Yeah, that is the ongoing plan. So, you know, spend one, save one, invest, you know, spend and invest one and uh, save the other. Okay, all right. And in terms of um, the extra work, you did mention that you do some virtual work, which I suspect is sort of online, sort of telemedicine, et cetera. So how do you, you know, I assume a lot of these workplaces are quite flexible. So work from home, et cetera. You might be working extra. You might be picking up extra work. What do you do with that extra income? Invest it straight back into the market. So invest everything. So if you, if you did an extra shift, earn an extra couple of thousand, whatever it is. So you pretty much hoard all that money and put it into investment or try to anyway. Yeah, so the way I deal with my income is the untaxed portion gets allocated to a separate account called tax ATO. 50% of that goes into it straight away, you know, and that just sits and offsets our mortgage. So I tend, I aim to do a 60-40 split, so investing roughly a 40% of our take-home income and spending about 60. Okay, yep. So that's pretty aggressive. And in terms of, you know, uh, you know, going into specifics here, you know, once you reach fellowship and doing some mental calculations, really as a family, we're looking at potentially over 500, 600 or 700,000 of income with, with a significant savings. So hopefully if you can, you know, save even 20, 30% of that, that's, that's a significant wicket. So I think you've, so you've sort of, sounds to me like you've thought about this, you've structured it out. And do you then automate it? So, I mean, how do you work out that 60-40 split? I, I do it every time we get paid. There's okay. no, you know, there's not really a, I don't use an automation process in that because the pay comes in drips and drabs and it's difficult. Right. Yeah. So it's variable. And, and, and I think this is some of the questions that I get asked a lot about variable income, um, which is tricky. But I guess one of the things is, uh, do you find it satisfying that you're doing it every every pay period or every time money comes in, because that's something people have told me they'd like to do it manually because they feel a bit of a psychological boost to keep them doing that. No, no. To me, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a bit of a discipline thing. You kind of just split it, you know, 60-40 and just be done with it. You know, this is money that should be invested. This is money that we need to use wisely. Uh, so, you know, we're preserving our future here somewhere, wouldn't you? And, and is this sort, of, this sort of thing, I mean, can I ask how old you are? Uh, I'm 32 this year. So you're 32, um, so very young. Did this sort of practice and principles start 
very early on in your career, like as an intern or resident, or is it something you've only been doing for the last few few years? I think I've been more aggressive with my finances in the last sort of five, three to five years, I'd say. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd really have to give you credit, Dip. You know, I, you know, I listen to a lot of your podcasts, pay yourself first, you know, um, <laughs> And so I've, I've grown up listening to a lot of yours and, and a lot of my financial literacy has been built on the space that you provided us. So thank you. Yeah. And, and just, just a bit of background for the listeners. Um, Dean actually contacted me about six months ago. It was actually pretty random. Uh, and this is kind of how it all kind of happens. You know, people sort of contact me via Facebook and then we got a bit chatting and then he's obviously been following my podcast for a number of, uh, number of months to years. And, um, and it's nice to see that it's had a positive impact. So that's, that's, I mean, that's a pretty good intro in terms of who you are, what you do, your structure, your career, your income, and your savings. Um, we're just going to take a quick break. And then after the break, we're going to go into side hustles. If you've got any side hustles or if you locum, for example, and then I really want to pick your brain about productivity. And we've had a bit of a chat about this over the phone and on chat groups. Uh, it's a productivity is something that I'm really interested in, but I want to pick Dean's brain on that. We'll be right back after a very short break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, we're back. Now we've got Dean, who is a private assistant. He's a medical doctor who assists in operations privately, mainly in orthopedics, but also in other specialties such as cosmetics. Side hustle. Um, you did mention about investments and things like that. I mean, is it mainly just traditional stuff that you do or do you have anything sort of random in terms of locum work or side hustle that you do? Not at the moment. So when I was when I was working in hospitals and I would have days off, I would do a lot of um, back when COVID was all the rage and I was, I was some of the doctors doing the COVID swabs, the COVID jabs and, you know, th- those were the ways that I'd use my spare time or days off um, to generate side income. Uh, I tend to go outside the hospital um, rather than staying in in the the environment that I was comfortable in. And a it expands my circle and you know and and who I get to see and talk to and you go to different suburbs and you see a whole new different clientele there and it's really interesting. Yeah, look, I mean that's interesting in medicine, isn't it? Different suburbs, different areas of Melbourne. You have different potentially different pathology. 
because of the different demographics and ethnicities, et cetera, and different clientele. And I suppose COVID would have affected your private assisting income because, you know, in Victoria especially, which is where, you know, I'm from and you're from, a lot of the operating lists got cancelled. So presumably you were able to supplement some of that uh, income loss with COVID work. Uh, well, I was very lucky. I was still employed in the public health system, sector at the time. Right. <laughs> okay. This um, this private assisting is a fairly recent change. Right. Okay. Perfect. And and I guess I mean, are we? Am I right in here in saying that your aim, you know, in the next sort of ten, twenty, whatever years it may be, is to achieve financial independence earlier than the average retirement age? Is that what you're sort of thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think I want to be able to get to the stage where I can choose to work rather than have to work. All right. So essentially, you're you're trading time for income now, but hopefully you want to buy back some of that time for later on, which is kind of what we're all doing at the moment. I mean, I don't think I'd ever retire early, but certainly I'd, I'd, I'd probably definitely cut down uh, and you know choose to do work rather than having to work to pay the bills. I really want to pick your brain on productivity, right? So I've spoken to a lot of people, you know, doctors, non-doctors, et cetera. And what's unique about people that have a relatively high income and have a relatively, you know, on their way to have a reasonably high net worth, et cetera, uh, particularly in the medical space, is their level of productivity. The people that I speak to that are able to do things very quickly, very efficiently, and, you know, they're just they're able to use their time in a much more productive way. That's something that I've learned myself over the last sort of six years of becoming significantly more productive now than what I was six years ago. What does productivity mean to you? I mean, coming off a surgical background and what are some of the things that you do that make you perhaps a little bit more productive than the average you know, 31-year-old doctor that's listening in and thinking, I want to improve my productivity? Depends on what you're trying to achieve here. If you're trying to make one thing you do successful, then obviously repetition is key. But most of the time I'd say don't do things twice. Measure once, cut. No, sorry. Measure twice, cut once. <laughs> It'd be awful if you did it the Absolutely. other way. Yeah. Um, and especially, not things- especially in surgery, right? <laughs> <laughs> Measure twice, twice, cut once, please. Great. Measure twice, cut once, and you know, not doing things multiple times. That's where, even in surgery, that's where you see the differences between the really slick, really quick surgeons and the ones who just take a little bit longer. They do things a, a couple more times. The good surgeons and the quick ones tend to do things once and don't repeat their, their movements again. Um, and then, you know, automating things, bills, repayments, um, your credit card debt, uh, it just takes the decision and mental fatigue away. And then sort of frees up more mental capacity to do other things. And um, I guess the other thing that I've also learned is to cut your losses quickly or, you know, know when you're wrong and get out of it. And it, it doesn't have to be a financial thing. It can be anything in your personal life, in your work relationship, you know, there's no harm in saying I was wrong and moving on that itself is productivity. You're cutting off, you know, a lot of this unnecessary waste of time. If it's not for you, it's not for you. Just move on. So it's interesting that you used a surgical example there in terms of productivity. And 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 I, I my background is in surgery. I'm, I'm, I'm a GP now, mainly in the emergency space, but I've done a lot of surgery. And you're right. When you get into the operating room, which is interesting, some surgeons, they just cut their number of steps 
significantly and it makes a huge difference in terms of the operating time. Now, in the private, that's to your advantage because you can do a lot more cases in the same amount of theatre time than perhaps a slightly slower operator. Of course, you know, we got to correct it for complexity of the operation, complexity of the patient, et cetera, et cetera. And in comes the anaesthetist, you know, who you'd hope is efficient as well, because if you've got a relatively slowish anaesthetist, of course, that has an impact on the ability for the surgeon to be productive. And, and one of my bosses used to say, you know, make sure that you're thinking your steps in surgery so that you minimise your movements unnecessarily uh, and it just adds up. Uh, you know, you save 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, and all of a sudden you can squeeze in an extra case. This is very important for those surgical registrars listening in in public hospitals because we've got a massive waiting list. You can't just take your sweet time, you know, doing operations for your long, you know, uh, for as long as you like. Of course, we all need to train and I get it and all that sort of stuff, but that's a really interesting thing. And the other interesting thing that I've learned in the private assisting field, which I did a lot of, is the number of throughput. You'll see the efficiency in the private system compared to the public system, where I'm sure, uh, Dean, you've been in the situation, you've called for the patient in the public 20 minutes ago, you go to the anaesthetic bay, they're not there. And you're like, where are they? Oh, you know, they're still in ED and they're still getting paperwork done. Whereas that kind of doesn't happen in the private. You know, they're there, they're ready to go. And the anaesthetist, I feel, is very critical in making that happen. Uh, um, Do you agree? Do you find that the anaesthetist kind of drives the flow in theatre and the surgeon does the cases and ready and waiting scrubbed for the next case. Yeah, absolutely. If you've got a slower anaesthetist, you'd really feel it. Turnover tends to be a little bit slower, you know, and sometimes patients are a bit more complex and that just adds to the the nature of our work. Um, But no, you definitely see the difference. Um, You feel it when there's a really quick (laughs) anaesthetist. You look up and the patient's asleep. Oh, it's, it makes a huge difference. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I mean, utilising that principle in other professions, you know, accountancy, engineering. I mean, I mean I've seen uh, landscapers, um, I've seen uh, electricians and plumbers that come and do their work. Uh, and you can tell that, that the, the people that are just so much more productive, they're able to do things in such, such short a time compared to the other plumber who comes in and, you know, takes his own he's sweet time and puts a ladder up and blah, blah, blah. Whereas the other guy's already finished. Makes a huge difference in terms of your income per unit time, which is the next concept. Is that something that you think about? Like, I mean, now we're sort of getting onto the finance side of things, but I'm just curious, how much does that play in your mind? Do you sort of think, okay, well, how can I be more productive? How can I utilize the time more effectively and create income? How do you, what's your view on income per unit time? I'm just curious because a lot of docs don't understand that principle. And a lot of people just don't understand that principle anyway. Oh, exactly that. I was literally about to mumble time unit, (laughs) value of unit, value of time per unit or whatever that is, you know. Um, well, you've just got you've just got to work out what your per unit time exactly is, exactly is, is worth, and 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 claim that you know don't don't be shy about naming how much your time is worth to you because it is worth something. Um, but I agree, you know, sitting on your hands is a waste of time. If you're not if you're not if you're standing, you're either doing something, cleaning, or working. That's the productivity side of things. It's something that I'm really passionate about. I've sort of thought about. Everything that I do, my workstation, my driving, my shifts that I do, how can I cut steps in order to be more productive? 
And that way, if I'm more productive, I get more work done. But more importantly, I get more work done in the same amount of time, which means I don't have to do work later. Like there's nothing worse than, you know, having to, you know, work after hours, you know, things like, you know, taxes or billings or utilities, you know, all of that's kind of automated. My investing is automated. I assume yours is as well to some extent. And that, okay, the cognitive burden of that is gone. And I got more time to do stuff that I really want to do, like episode prep or podcasting, etc. which I do a lot of time during hours. Um, I, I don't spend a lot of time prepping for these episodes in my own time, if that makes any sense. So that's sort of what we'll do, actually, Dean, this this episode has been very interesting. I, I might just, if, if, if you've got another half an hour? Yeah. Perfect. So we might end this here uh, as part of part one with Dean, and then we're going to go and come back and uh, release a part two. We're going to talk about debt. We're going to talk about superannuation. We're going to talk about insurance, his views on that and also children, financial independence, and investing, and any money wins. So lots to cover still, uh, but we might go into part two because I find after about 35, 40 minutes, people tend to tune out. So lots of interesting topics to come about. So stay tuned for that one. And uh, like always, if you want to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any platform that you may be using, make sure you leave a five-star rating and a positive review. People read those reviews. A lot of effort and thought process goes into these episodes and I really appreciate And if you want to contact me, reach out any questions, feel free to do that and I'm happy to answer them. I'm not a financial advisor, but I'm always happy to answer principles and concepts which may be applicable in your own life. My name's Dev Raga. We're with Dr. Dean, and this is the end of part one. Until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.